a message that I was going to do last week, and so I think God has a sense of humor, because I think he put us through what we, he put us through this last couple of weeks uh, to sort of see if I was really ready, really qualified to preach this message. So we'll see. We'll see. Um, we're in John chapter 14, uh, and I think you'll get the connection between this message and what we just saw on the screen pretty quickly. Let me pray for us, and we will dig in, see what God has for us. God, I thank you for your love for us, uh, for me and Jackie in particular. Uh, we went through some difficult times of the last six months, really, um, and yet you've sustained us through it. You've brought us through it, and we never doubted that you would. And even if you didn't cause her to get well, we knew where she was headed, and it would be enough to rejoice over. So we thank you for this time together. I pray that we might learn from you and, and be able to inculcate it into our lives in a real way. So many Christians don't, able, don't have the capacity to do this or not actually taking advantage of it. You promise us something in these words of yours in John chapter 14, and we would be wise to take you up on that promise. So we ask in Jesus' name, you would teach us, change us. Amen. Well, I learned a term when I was going to graduate school uh, studying international relations and economics. The term was the misery index. Anybody ever heard of that? All you economists out there, <laughs> misery index. Uh, I raise that because there's been a lot of misery over the past couple of years. Uh, the index first showed up in the 1960s, coined by a fellow named Arthur Oaken, who was a, uh, an economist uh, person working with the Lyndon Johnson administration. It's simply the inflation rate added to the unemployment rate. And those two became sort of an economic indicator of how the nation was faring. Uh, as of February, we were sitting here in America at 9.95. Inflation was running about 6.5%, unemployment running just below 3.5. Since 1948, the lowest it's ever been was in 1953 when it was 2.97. The highest was in June 1980, just months before the election, where Reagan defeated Jimmy Carter. Jackie and I purchased our first house, a townhouse, over in Reston during the Carter years. Our interest rate, and you'll love this, was just over 12%. Yeah, misery is the right word. Now, there's another word because, uh, besides mystery, misery that I get from the news. People would like, for example, the war between Russia and the Ukraine to end. They want peace. And that's a word that jumped out at me when I read this text we're in this morning. Jesus himself uses it, and it just might be considered the cure for misery. So let's read through it together. Jesus talking here on the night before he's crucified. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I'm going away, and I will come to you. If you love me, you would have rejoiced, because I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. 
And now I've told you before it takes place so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. Turns out peace might just be the most sought-after experience on earth. Maybe more than money, maybe more than fame, maybe more than power, maybe more than status. People seem to want peace. I googled the word peace in preparation for this message, and uh, in, in 0.73 seconds, I received 2.6 billion results. No, I did not go through them all. <laughs> Fascinated by that, I typed in the word, the, word, uh, the phrase world peace, and I got 2.1 billion results in 0.5 seconds. I kept on going. It was kind of fun. I typed in personal peace. I got 1.1 billion results. I typed in spiritual peace. I got 198 million results. Turns out we think about peace. We talk about peace. We yearn for peace. We maybe even visualize it. We put it on bumper stickers. We want peace. We want world peace. There's even something called the Peace Prize, the Nobel Peace Prize, or as our presidential press secretary calls it, the Nobel Peace Prize. Interestingly, the Nobel Peace Prize was invented by Albert Nobel, the man who invented dynamite. So let me tell you this little story because it's fascinating to me. Alfred Nobel was a Swedish chemical engineer working to safely harness the power of nitroglycerin. That effort ultimately led to the invention of dynamite. However, during the research and development for that product, an explosion occurred which killed five people, including Alfred's brother, Ludwig. Right? Several newspapers published obits of Alfred in error. In many of those obits, he was condemned for his development of military explosives. A French newspaper proclaimed, thinking it was Alfred had died, not Ludwig, proclaimed, the merchant of death is dead. Well, that sort of shook him. So he decided that that was not what he wanted his legacy to be. So he embarked on peaceful things and bequeathed 94% of his assets to fund in perpetuity five Nobel or Nobel Peace Prizes. But listen, peace seems so elusive. I know we talk about it. We might negotiate for it. But how many actual people experience it? Let's just get down to brass tacks. In the last 3,100 years of recorded history, there have been 286 years of global peace. That means that, that in all recorded history we know of, only 8% of world history has been peaceful. That's it. In those 3,100 years, people have recorded 8,000 peace treaties that have been signed, formed, and signed, and then broken. Peace seems elusive. Well, it is elusive outwardly in the world. But our Bibles and Jesus tells us that it doesn't have to be elusive inwardly. The Bible speaks about peace about 397 times. You get the picture that peace is to actually be a genuine experience for those who trust in Christ. Isn't it rich that in Isaiah chapter 9, Jesus is actually called the Prince of Peace? Not the Prince of Hope, not the Prince of Love, Right? Not the Prince of Joy, even though all those would be true. 
He's called the Prince of Peace. As if to indicate that if you want peace, you have a need to get to know the prince of it. And what is ironic is that so many people will talk about peace, search for peace, sing about peace, but never actually meet or receive the prince of peace. Sort of like Caesar Augustus, who had trouble sleeping. He discovered that across town, there was a guy who was seriously in debt, in debt so far that he would never be able to pay it off. And yet, the story was he just slept like a, like a log every night. And so Caesar Augustus wanted to buy that man's bed. See, he thought it's all about the, the bed, some kind of ancient posturepedic, sleep number, whatever, perfect mattress. No, it was about the guy, not about the bed. So we got these five verses that we just read in front of us, and they contain some amazing truth that we need to apply. Jesus actually references these experiences of peace, so let's get to the first one. Peace in a troubled world. First is in verse 27. He says this to his disciples. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Uh, the, the term Greek, uh, in, in the term of peace was actually a greeting in, in Greek. It's, Greek people would talk to each other. They'd say, Irini. It means peace. If you go to Jerusalem today, people will greet you with shalom, which means peace in Hebrew. Three times in John chapter 20, Jesus will say this, peace be with you as a greeting when he appears after his resurrection to talk to his followers, right? But here in chapter 14, in this verse, it's not a greeting. It's not a salutation. It is a promise. So I'm going to paraphrase this, but it has what I believe might be the best way to translate it. Jesus is saying, let me, let me cause you to have a quiet, peaceful, restful, tranquil heart and mind. Peace is the promise. Now, the Bible does differentiate between two different kinds of peace. If you don't know what they are, let me explain it real quick. There's a peace with God and a peace of God. Two different, very, very different things. But the key point is you can never really experience peace of God until you've experienced peace with God. Scripture is pretty clear about this. You and I, when we enter the planet, we don't like to think about this, but when we enter the planet, we enter the world at war with God. And we are foot soldiers of God's enemy, Satan. Peace with God is when you fly the white flag of spiritual surrender. You go, okay, I give up. I give up. I come to God on God's terms, which is the cross of Christ. I recognize that what God says about me is true, that I am a sinner deserving of death. I recognize that God loves the socks off of me anyway, loves me so much that he sent his son, the second person in the Trinity, to come to earth, live a totally sin-free life, and die as a substitute for my sins on the cross. And I respond to that love by believing by faith in Jesus as my Savior and my Lord. You go there, and you have peace with God. Your war with God is over. You changed sides. God then applies Jesus' righteousness of perfection to you. He sees you through the blood of Christ, and that wipes away all your guilty verdict. That's what Paul tells us in Romans. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith or declared holy or righteous, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the only way you get it. Then there's a second peace, which is the peace of God. 
That's the experience. That's the tranquility. That's the peace that Jesus is promising his disciples here who are really, really agitated right now, listening to Jesus. If you were to pull another verse into verse 27, it might be the one in Philippians, which is uh, maybe a lot of you go. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but by and everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ. So let me give it to you in a shorthand statement that you can remember. When Jesus is Savior, that brings peace with God. When Jesus is Lord, that brings peace of God. Not only that, but look at the second part of that verse. He doesn't just say, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Literally, my peace, he's giving his, not just peace, he's giving his peace to his disciples and to followers. He's the manufacturer of that kind of peace. He's the distributor of that kind of peace. Again, let me paraphrase all this together. Jesus is saying, look, I, I, I'm going to give you the capacity to cause you to be restful and tranquil and quiet and peaceful inside your hearts and minds with the same kind of rest and tranquility and peace that I have inside my heart and my mind. So let's just let that settle in for a second. In Scripture, you tell me. Do you ever have a picture of Jesus in Scripture as being frantic, frenzied, confused? Never, ever. And that's the legacy he intends for you and me to have as we walk this world. That's the effect that a life with Christ is supposed to produce. Paul put it this way. The fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and long-suffering and goodness and kindness, etc., etc. That's the effect of Christ on a human life. J. Oswald Sanders put it this way. Peace is not, not the absence of trouble. Peace is the presence of God. What this means is that you and I have the capacity to be at peace, very deeply in peace, while our world around us, not just the world around us, but our world, your personal world, seems to be falling apart around you. It's peace in a troubled world. Now, you should have that. I should have that. For the life of me, I don't, I don't know why some Christians still get the idea that God is, is up there and he's looking at them and he's waiting to, just waiting to frown at them for stuff that they're doing. That's the idea that people sometimes get. They picture God as having this furrowed face and crossing his arms and just saying, okay, you, not good, not good. I've got to get you for that. got to get you for that. I, I don't think anything could be further from the truth. Jeremiah declares this to a bunch of people who have been incredibly disobedient, so much so that he's, they're now in exile. They're sitting in exile. The exile is going to last 70 years. Most of them are probably not going to live through that. And they're wondering if God has completely forsaken them and their people, their nation. And then Jeremiah 29 says this, For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says Jehovah, thoughts of peace, not of evil, to give you hope in your latter end. So Jesus promises peace. He promises peace, and it's a peace we do not get here. It comes from beyond here, which leads us to kind of a second point. 
It's really peace from another world. Jesus promises this way. Not a worldly kind of peace, an otherworldly kind of peace. Not as the world gives do I give to you. So you'll never find this kind of peace anywhere on planet Earth. It isn't to be found. Now, I do have to say that people who aren't Christians, a lot of them may seem very peaceful. We'll tell you I'm at peace. There are temporary sort of experiences of tranquility on earth. You can find it in a beautiful morning, a romance, an experience where you go, oh, I'm just in such a good place right now. I'm at peace. A good cup of coffee, maybe, gets you that. But these are sort of transitory, momentary experiences. In fact, I would even go so far as to say that folk who are not followers of Jesus, any kind of peace like that is just kind of like a bliss of ignorance. It's the idea that what you don't know won't hurt you kind of thing, because if an unbeliever really understood what is coming downstream and how things are going to wrap up downstream, they would be living in high anxiety. Isaiah put it this way, there is no peace, says the Lord the wicked. Now look, I'm not calling unbelievers wicked, but God does. Why? Because they, like everyone ever born, you and me included, thinks things that run counter to God's holiness. That's just sin, and it comes from our sin nature that we're born with. Followers of Jesus get it, that they're sinners, and by God's definition, wicked. But followers of Jesus also understand something else, that God loves wicked people and has deigned to provide a way for sin, that wickedness, to be expunged from our records through faith in Christ. And that's really the only cure. So that's it. Trusting in anything else is just kind of a bliss of ignorance. It might be transient, might be momentary, but it will eventually not end well. But for the Christian, this promise is something far deeper and something longer-lasting. Look at the very last sentence of verse 27. It's divided into two parts. Let not your hearts be troubled, and they are troubled, neither let them be afraid. Now, the way it's written, it's saying this. Stop doing what you're doing right now. Knock it off. In other words, and we can imagine this, I think, the disciples' voices in that upper room are getting more and more agitated. They are distressed. They're filled with anxiety. Jesus has said he's leaving. They're filled with fear. So he says to them, let not your hearts be troubled. You know what that tells me? That tells me there's kind of a cooperation going on here. There's God's part where pre, pre, peace is kind of provided, but there's also our part in accepting the peace. I promise you peace. It's a very real experience. It can be yours. You can walk in it, but you, you got a part to play. You have to kind of appropriate the promise as your promise from Jesus. Does that make sense? You, you, you have to let not your hearts be troubled. You have to stop being filled with anxiety. Stop that and appropriate the peace I am providing to you, I'm giving to you. turns out that a lot of God's promises are kind of that way. Jesus says, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to live inside of you. And that did happen. It was a gift that arrived. But Paul later on says, wait a minute, you and I are to be filled with the Spirit. That's a commandment. So there's two parts of this. The disciples had every earthly reason to be fearful, to be agitated, to be troubled, to be afraid. Fear is just a natural response to trouble. But peace is the supernatural response to trouble. And whenever you encounter someone going through a rough time and you see God's peace show up in their life, it, it, and for me at least, it humbles me. You're in the presence of something that is supernatural going on. 
Look, the peace of God can be, I think, misinterpreted. You guys all know by now uh, kind of the personal afflictions that my wife has suffered started back in 2008, which interestingly enough was the, was the time that uh, God called me into full-time ministry. Uh, her pain was so severe for months that she was literally lying in a fetal position in bed screaming and asking me to find a way to help her die so that she could go on to heaven. <clears throat> Not a fun period. It took about a year before we finally found some docs who could uh, help her manage the pain. But how are you to have the peace of God during that? Somehow we did. Mostly by just constantly praying, reminding ourselves that God loves me, God loves Jackie. Uh, we're both his kids. He's got this. He's in charge of this. Even though we had no idea how any of it was going to go. It's just it's been one thing after another, really, for the last 15 years. And along the path, I tell you, I've always asked God to, hey, listen, I'm the one that went into full-time ministry. Afflict me, man. Give it to me. I mean, sent some stuff my way, a little cancer, death of both parents. But all of that, really, ultimately, is overshadowed by the increasing depth of our relationship through these hard things and our relationship with God through the hard things. And when I say the peace of God can be misinterpreted as disingenuous, here's what I mean. Someone who attended this church a while back approached me and said, essentially, that I was not being honest or authentic. In this person's view, given all that had occurred in Jackie in my life, I must totally be a mess, spiritually, emotionally, pretty much every other way. How could I not be given all that had happened to us? And by giving the impression that I was okay, that we were okay, that we were at peace, even though things were and sometimes times miserable, this person concluded I was just faking it, that I wasn't being honest. Well, in processing all of this, God showed me something. I think this person was simply imagining, okay, what if the stuff that's happened to Duane and Jackie has been, had happened to me? If it happened to me, I would be totally devastated. As a result, anyone else who is experiencing those kind of things would have to be, by definition, devastated too. In short, this person seemed incapable of grasping the concept that Jesus talks about in these verses that you can be going through incredibly difficult, miserable, hard things and at the same time be experiencing the peace of God. We shouldn't be surprised that such a thing is possible given that Jesus promises this not only to the disciples but to us. And notice that the disciples, almost all of them, ended up being martyred. Things weren't always going to be easy for them. Now let me tell you, if Jackie and my life had always been easy, always been easy, piece of cake, just, just you know, living the dream, and then we went through what we've been through the last six months, yeah, maybe it would have mangled us up a lot more. But we've had lots of stuff going on in our 40, almost 49 years of marriage that God has taught us through, brought us through, loved us through. So we just learned through some tough stuff to trust him. So these more recent things that have happened have not caused us to have any doubts whatsoever. They just remind us that God's in charge. God's got us. Satan does not. God is in charge. Whatever he does is for our best and the world's best, so we let him go. We trust him. 
God reminded me of something while preparing this message. Remember the story when uh, Jesus sent his disciples out to the Sea of Galilee? And uh, a massive storm arose, not the one where he was already asleep in the boat. And the disciples are out there thinking, okay, this, it's over for us. We're all going to die in this mess. And then Jesus starts walking toward them on the water. And the Bible says they looked and they saw Jesus walking toward them on the water, but they did not know it was Jesus. Some of them thought it was a ghost. It's always sort of amazed me. I mean, who else is going to be walking on the water? Anyway, they didn't, they didn't capture that yet. But why didn't they recognize that? Here's my take on that. They were never expecting Jesus to come to them in the middle of the storm. But that's what made it so beautiful. Jesus came to them in the middle of the very thing they were experiencing and the very thing that scared the bejesus out of them. It was a storm. They couldn't get past the storm. Look, you might be in a storm right now. Or you might be facing one. Guarantee you, if you're a Christian, you got them coming. They'll come at you. You don't, you don't know when, or don't know what. It could be a surgery. It could be a death of a loved one. You fill in the blank. But I guarantee you, if you look, you'll find Jesus show up in the middle of the mess. It's that trouble, once you and Jesus put through it, that will lead you to say how good and how gracious and how loving God has been and how much he has shown you and changed you in amazing ways. Yeah, peace. My peace, not as the world gives, Jesus says. So don't let your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. Another kind of peace Jesus talks about in this passage is peace while you're waiting. See this in verse 28, 29. You heard me say, I'm going away, and I will come to you. Okay, Jesus is leaving, and you can just imagine what they're thinking right now as he says, you heard me t- tell you I'm leaving. They're probably going, yeah, yeah, we know. We're not happy about that. Stop telling us you're going. We don't want you to go. And then Jesus makes this point. It's actually, if you think about it, you don't have to think about it too hard. It's a rebuke. If you loved me, which means you really don't. You would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Okay, so Jesus leaves heaven. He left the glories of heaven, left all the prerogatives of that place as the second person in the Trinity. He left face-to-face fellowship with the Father. He came down to this earth. He suffered all the limitations of being a human being, suffered the temptation coming soon, tomorrow, the beatings, the torture, the humiliation, and the crucifixion. So if you really loved me, You'd be rejoicing that I'm headed back, back to heaven. See, we are told explicitly what true love looks like in 1 Corinthians 13, written to a church that frankly frankly didn't have any love, so they needed to be taught what it was. It says, love does not seek its own. If you really love someone, you are concerned about what's best for that other person, right? Love flows outward, not what's best for you. What are the disciples thinking about right now? They are thinking about themselves. If they were thinking about Jesus, if they loved him, they would have thrown a party, a homecoming party, preparing for him going back to heaven. But notice what else Jesus says that did not impress the disciples. I'm going away and I will come to you. That's the thought I want to capture with you. I'm going away, but I'm going to come to you. I'm coming back to you. So we got to ask, well, when's he coming back? How's he coming back? Well, you can answer it in three ways or so. Number one, he's coming back in the resurrection. How many days do they have to wait for that? Three. Number two, he's also coming back at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes. 
Jesus said, I'm going to send you another helper, another comforter, just like me to take my place. That's the Holy Spirit. In fact, Jesus also says, and we've read it, that the, the, the Jesus, the Father, and the Holy Spirit will all take up residence inside each of them. So how long does that wait? Okay, 50 days. Finally, number three, he's coming back eventually. First, when he comes back, collects all Christians through history, dead and alive, they all rise to the dead in what we term the rapture. And then second, when he comes back to earth after the great tribulation and takes charge. All right? We're still waiting for those last two. So whether it's three days or 50 days or 2,000 plus years, there needs to be a peace in our time of waiting for the Lord's promises to all be fulfilled. Waiting. How many of you like to wait for anything? No? Everybody likes to wait? No. My guess is you don't enjoy waiting. Let me tell you this. When you go to the grocery store, I guarantee you, every one of you, when you're getting ready to check out, if you don't do self-checkout, you, wait, you look around and see who's in line, how big is the cart, how many stuff, things are in the cart, which line's going to go faster, and that's the line you get in. You, you, purposely, you don't get in the line that you think is going to be the slowest, do you? Nobody does that. I took my son to Disney down in Orlando uh, in early May, very early May, one year, uh, before everyone else got out of school. We had, we had the run of the place. Didn't wait in line, not even once. There was one roller coaster that we took, I think, at least 20 times, right, I mean, right after the other. The only thing that stopped us was that we were too exhausted to climb the stairs again the 21st time. <laughs> we couldn't do it. I hear stories all the time about Disney being a place where you just stand in line. Lots of time to wait. We generally hate to wait. So let's apply this. First of all, to those who have had loved ones die and go to heaven. Spouse, child, parent, friend. You were at the funeral. You were grieving. And you're still grieved. You experienced loss. Understandably. Sure you do. However, it's kind of weird, isn't it? At the same time you're grieving, you can also rejoice that you know that they're in heaven. In fact, it's the knowledge that they're in heaven that brings you peace while you're waiting to be reunited. And second, apply it this way. You and I are waiting for God to come back, for Jesus to come back. Okay, it's been a couple thousand years since Jesus said he would come back. He's not come back yet, but he will. In the meantime, the world's getting uglier and messier and just, I mean, seems to me bad. Truth be told, it seems like evil's kind of taken charge. We don't even know anymore what a man is what a woman is, what a boy is, what a girl is. The world is so bereft of God's wisdom, most of the world, like big mouth bass, is just taking the bait, swallowing it whole. Still, Jesus says, in the middle of that mess, you and I can still be experiencing God's peace. Now, how, let me ask, do you know how and why you can have that kind of peace? I'm going to show you in verse 29. Jesus says this, and now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. So here's how you have peace. You look back on all the things that Jesus predicted or that the Bible predicted would happen and have happened. So listen, we're not going to do it. There's a, there are promises and, and prophecies in Scripture are, are numerous. So I'm just going to pick a few. Jesus predicted he was going to be betrayed. Was he betrayed? Yep, check. That happened. Jesus predicted they were going to hang him on a cross. He'd be crucified. Did that happen? Yep, it happened. Okay, he predicted he would rise again from the dead. Did that happen? Mm, yes, check. Even secular historians at the time recorded this as a true truth, a fact. 
Jesus said he would send the Holy Spirit to live inside of us. Did that happen? Check. Yes, it did. So Jesus also said, I'm going to come back, and I'm going to get you. That's in Thessalonians. And I'm coming back to earth to rule and reign. Is he going to do any of that? You know how you know he's going to do that? Because everything else he has said he would do, he's done. I told you beforehand, so that when it comes to pass, you will believe. If you don't mind, I want to take you over to chapter 16 just for a second. Take a peek at verse 33. Here's what it says. Jesus still speaking. I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. See, there it is. There's going to be trouble. You can have peace in the middle of the mess. Fulfilled promises, all from the past, provide us certainty regarding fulfilled promises in the future. And that results in peace for us as we wait. Some example. Let's say you, your, your car breaks down and you need rides to work or whatever. So I tell you that tomorrow morning I'm going to pick you up at 7 a.m. And I show up exactly at 7 a.m. And then I say, now tomorrow I'm going to pick you up at 8 a.m. And I'm there exactly on time. And then I say, tomorrow I'm going to be there at 8.30 a.m. And I'm going to show up exactly on time. You play that forward about a month. Eventually, you are going to know that when I make a promise to show up, I'm going to show up on time, every time. And you'll have peace knowing that. You won't live in any anxiety. You're not going to be thinking, oh, I'm going to be late today. I'm going to be late. No, you know that, that Dwayne's going to show up on time. This is Jesus in action. He makes a promise. He shows up on time, every time. Instead, what that provides for us is not anxiety, but peace. Finally, there's one other aspect, peace and spiritual warfare. Third kind of peace that will complete the picture for us. Look at what it says in the last two verses of this text. I will, I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He's, not, he's got no claim on me. But I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. Well, who's the ruler of this world? Satan. We know that because in chapter 12... Jesus calls Satan this very name, the ruler of this world. In 2 Corinthians 4, Paul calls the devil the god of this age or the god of this world. And how did he get those titles? Why is he called that? Pretty simple. When Adam and Eve fell into the temptation in the garden, they handed over the dominion that God had given them over to Satan. They forfeited that. That's what Paul meant in Romans when he says this. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. So Adam, you might say, is kind of like the Benedict Arnold of the universe, right? He's betrayed us. We get to suffer the consequences ever since. So Satan's called the ruler of this world. And Jesus says the ruler of this world is coming. But to be fair in context, this probably refers more to, Jesus, to Judas right now, who's negotiating this the betrayal of Jesus. He's going to lead the soldiers to where Jesus is, who will, who will arrest him. But Jesus doesn't say, and Judas is coming. No, he says Satan is coming because Judas is just the pawn. Backstage, the real power grab is with Satan. And Satan is thinking, I'm going to manipulate Judas to get rid of Jesus. But notice what Jesus says. I will no longer talk much with you. In other words, Jesus is predicting this is going to happen pretty darn soon. And it does happen in chapter 18, same night. So the ruler of the world is coming, but notice Jesus essentially dismisses him as a threat. He says, he's got no claim on me. 
He can't control me. He can't manipulate me. What is about to happen isn't really because of anything Satan has going on. I'm doing this to be obedient to my Father. He's the one that's in perfect control. It's all part of God's plan. Satan just don't think, doesn't even know he's uh, kind of involved in it. Satan might think he's in charge, but he's dead wrong. You and I can say the same thing. As a child of God, Satan will tempt you, harass you, hassle you, but you can say with all authority, he's got no control over you. He's got nothing on you. He can't harm you at all without God's permission because the Bible says, greater is he that is in you than he that's in the world. He's got no capacity to decide your fate or anything else. So you can never have to say, you never should say, the devil may be do it. You never use that excuse. He's got no grip, no hold, no authority over you unless you give it to him. Now don't underestimate Satan. He's got some powerful uh, capabilities. But please don't overestimate him either. A lot of Christians do. They're afraid that there's a devil behind every, every bush. He's got no hold on you. And because of that, you can have peace even in spiritual warfare. In building, building the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco, engineers knew they had to deal with three stresses, three loads that they called them. They had to deal with dead load, live load, and wind load. Dead load is like the weight of the bridge itself, keeping that bridge there and suspended. Live load is the daily traffic, cars, trucks, everything else crossing that thing, uh, because it all creates vibrations. And interestingly enough, you can also walk across the Golden Gate Bridge. Foot traffic creates a different kind of vibration that can also bring a bridge down. So they had to uh, accommodate all those kind of different uh, live loads. And then the wind load, of course, all the storms that come and buffet and beat against the bridge. So they had to build into the bridge the capacity for it to stay anchored and braced. In life, we all need anchoring. We all need bracing to bear up under the load because the world's going to bring us trouble. The trouble that comes from the world, the trouble that comes from us as we wait on God's promises, the troubles that come particularly to believers who are buffeted and facing spiritual warfare. So what are your bracings? Well, maybe you would say, well, I've got a great marriage, or I've got kids around me who love me, or I've got parents, I've got, I got good friends, I've got a church that I'm involved in. All those are on your list. If they are, they're good. However, you also need to be able to honestly add, I have the peace of God. It anchors me. It braces me because I know who he is and I believe he is what he said he is. I have peace. And it's God peace. I can rest in it. I've got one more quick item and I'll do it in a minute or two. It's a word in our text that actually seems completely out of place when you're talking about trouble. It's the word rejoice. In 28, verse 28, Jesus says, if you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father. You ever thought about rejoicing during trials? In trouble? I mean, I know it sounds cheeky, but I mean, I mean, and honestly, Dwayne, are you nuts? Aside from this fact, maybe I'm nuts. Listen, Peter, who is in the upper room right now, listening to Jesus talk, heard everything Jesus said. He would then write these words later on in 1 Peter. In this you rejoice, though for now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved in various trials. One of the ways of handling trouble that comes into your life is to do it with rejoicing. What this verse says is that there's something that can allow us to rejoice even in the mess. It's referred to with the words, in this you rejoice. So what is Peter talking about? Why should we be rejoicing in the middle of the mess, in the middle of the, of, of the travail? Let me just read you 
the three verses that comes before the one I just read. And I think you'll get it. Peter says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Listen, what a joy it is along life's road to meet these gems of Christians that have learned to smile even when they're blasted with troubles. I think I mentioned when Jackie's got, Jackie's came home with a chest tube and a little container, which she's dubbed my little buddy. And I'm thinking, okay, if you, can, if you can have a sense of humor going through what you've just been through, but babe, you're okay. The world around you will sit up and take notice when you do this. When you're enduring tough things, trouble, spiritual warfare, with the peace of God guarding you, right? Why? Because it's, it's a supernatural thing that the world does not really know about or understand. And because it's a supernatural thing, it gives us great opportunity to share where that peace comes from to a world around us. And it's the peace that Jesus promised to give us. So he should be receiving all the glory, all the honor, and praise for it. So why don't we praise him for that as we take communion? God, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for your promises to us. And we thank you for the opportunity to appropriate those promises. Help us not forget that they're there, sitting right next to us, ready to be enjoyed, even in the hard things. We love you, and we love that you love us. Pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.